Welcome to... Hey, great shot. This is the Great Shot Podcast, brought to you by Cracked Rackets. My name is Alex Gruskin. He hasn't been on for a while, but since we are now done with the quarterfinals, it feels fitting that we have him back. It is my doubles partner, partner in crime, and the man you call when you want a nice weekend vacation, Maxwell LeBauer Rothman. Maxie, hey, great shot. Unfortunately, the two feet of snow in Park City, Utah was too good to pass up, and you wouldn't wait for me to record the fourth round, so I did have to skip that round but uh let me tell you the, the pow was just too nice i, I had to shed <laughs> oh i'm glad and you had fun out there you you're in good shape on the mountains uh i was until the end the knees are hurting and uh my my hit last night with my buddy did not go well because of it um but uh, you know it, it's good it's good i i'm <laughs> learning that i'm a 22 year old with a 50 year old's knees so oh. it's, well, I'm sure anytime you missed out on the tennis, you checked out our website, crackedrackets.com, where we have been keeping you listeners up to date hey, throughout this. Enti- <laughs> Thank you. Them. Throughout this entire Grand Slam, covering all of the important matches, the narratives, the off-court stuff, because it has really been an action-packed Australian Open. You know, check out that website if you want a more immediate update. Check out our social media: Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. So much great stuff up there. Of course, rate, review, subscribe, listen to this podcast as well as our other podcast the cracked interviews podcast but yes max rothman as you mentioned i could not afford to wait for you particularly after that third round dimitrov or maybe that was the fourth round it's all blending together it was the fourth round when tiafo knocked out dimitrov it was just it was so exciting i mean this entire tournament has been crazy it really has and and i didn't get to say anything about that match but i had called it before thank you also to tiafo for winning me money by betting on you because <laughs> I knew you were going to win that match and I was in the red. You brought me back to the green. So thank you very much. Westoff, can I get a cha-ching sound effect, please? Ah, well done by you, Rothman. And I know we've had some other fun exchanges regarding that stuff that we can leave off the pod. We don't want to talk about our gambling adventures and what has or hasn't gone right throughout this tournament. No one wants to hear that. But they do want to hear about this action. And because there are fewer matches in the later rounds, we get the chance to watch all of them. We also get the chance to watch other parts of the draw. I want to start today's recap by talking about two matches that were women's quarterfinals singles matches that I thought were the two most fascinating matches of the entire quarterfinal round. Let's start with the obvious match. Number seven seed Carolina Pliskova takes out Serena Williams, 6-4, 4-6, 7-5. Serena, of course, up 5-1 in that third set, Rothman. What a match. Yeah, I, I mean, really entertaining. Um, uh, if you have a chance to go back and watch this one, obviously you should. Uh, and, you know, such a crazy way to watch it end from the 5-1 up for Serena, you know, all the way to the the seven five, the six straight games for Pliskova. It, it was interesting, you know, seeing Serena clearly with an injured ankle, not called for the trainer in her post match interview. You know, she basically just outright says that Pliskova outplayed her. Um, you know, it, it was a, a very different and composed Serena than we've seen in the past, and maybe you know she's trying to, you know recover from her, her typical and most recent emotional outbursts at tournaments. Uh, but it, it was, it was nice to see from her, uh, but, but also weird. I, I still think, you know, there's no reason to not call a trainer. 
I definitely saw her missing some shots that she shouldn't, even with the ankle. Um, she said she didn't choke. I want to disagree with that. I think there was definitely some choking. Um, but all in all, just a, an interesting match. I mean, match point five one forty thirty on her serve. She gets called for a foot fault on what would have been an ace to seal the match. That point, she obviously, as you mentioned, stumbles on her ankle, kind of rolls it a little bit as she as Pliskova hits a ball behind her. And I think that theme of Pliskova hitting balls behind Serena was something we saw throughout the match. We've talked yep. before how when you're playing one of the big guns, you know, a Federer, Nadal, a Serena, a Djokovic, all of those category of players, you have to make your first serve. And Pliskova makes 79% of her first serves in this match, wins 68% of those points, you know, of the... I think she played 98 points on serve and won 60 of them. She won 52 of those 60 points on her first serve. That's so important because she, when she was able to dictate, move Serena around the court, you know, set herself in the middle of the court, she she did so much better in this match. And I thought Serena, to her credit, in the second set, managed to take advantage of the Pliskova serve, stepped in on a couple of returns, started playing a little bit more offense. But for Pliskova, I mean, she was just dictating throughout this match, and Serena isn't able to you know scatter around the court like she used to. Absolutely. I mean, that behind, hitting behind Serena, like you said, was so important for her, especially after seeing her roll her ankle. Not only that, I mean, Pliskova was just solid. She only had 15 unforced errors in the whole match, I, which is just And I don't impressive. mean to cut you. I don't mean to cut you off, but I think that point you make there is so correct. The fact that once Serena rolled her ankle, Pliskova took her time. She really oh, knew, yeah. okay, Serena is hurting. If I can stretch her, as long as I stay in this point, I should win it. Yeah, and in, in her post-match interview, she said, you know, at 5-1, she was, you know, ready to go into the locker room. And she herself can't even believe that she was able to stick in there. But I, I think, you know, you saw it in her the second she saw that little bit of vulnerability in Serena, took advantage and, and played a smart match. It, you have to give her credit for, you know, coming back and staying strong in that third set. Yeah, absolutely. And on the Serena front, you know, at the net, she goes 13 of 17 with the 76% conversion rating. Missed a couple swinging volleys that I have never seen her miss before. But, you know, she makes 65% of her first serves, wins 64% of those first serve points. Struggles when Pliskova was able to step up on her second serve, winning only 46% of those points. Yet still, 54 winners against 37 unforced airs for Serena. She can definitely win a slam in 2019. Oh, yeah, and it's interesting. In our Maybe it was you that posted it uh, in our Slack that, you know, is this the end of Serena? And I think by no means this is the end of Serena. That, first of all, that is such a Dalton Thieneman question. I'm offended you thought it was me. <laughs> <laughs> it is a Dalton question, and, and Dalton, thank you for asking it because we, we love seeing that from you. My style of question was the Naomi Osaka or Alex Virev, who yeah. ends up with more slams. And, well, we can tackle that one on a later date. But, yeah, I, for Serena, obviously losing a match like this is so disappointing, especially when you had, what was it, three or four match points. But I think the biggest takeaway, you know, if you're looking long-term for Serena, or at least long-term, meaning the entirety of the 2019 season, she looks good. She's going to be a force to reckon with moving forward. 
Well, then let's move on to our next match. Talk about another American women's singles player having a ton of success. Someone I like to think I called as having this sort of success in this tournament as the leader of the Colonites. I, of course, am talking about Danielle Collins, who takes out Anastasia Pavlchenkova, 2-6-7-5-6-1. She didn't have a single win in a Grand Slam before this tournament, yet Max Rothman, she reaches the semifinals here. What do you think of Danielle Collins? I mean... First of all, you just have to talk about her focus and drive last night. She had one of those fit game faces on that she was out to freaking kill. It, it, there was nothing stopping her in her tracks last night. She, I know that exact mode she was in when you know she was fist pumping at you know the the points that she wanted, and you could see when she referenced to her box. It was just one of those you know modes you're in when you know you're you're in a groove you keep going you keep playing especially after that first set you know i i was not sure that she was going to be able to come back and she played fantastic tennis and and that third set was pure domination it was actually unbelievable counterpoint to you of course i think danielle collins could have won that first set she had so many break points i it must have been six or seven and you look for the match collins goes five of 15 pavlchenkova four of seven so there were plenty of break point opportunities for both players i mean you're right collins just swings away she goes after everything and you know you look at her second serve win percentage she goes 13 of 31 42 percent when pavlchenkova was able to go after the collins second serve dictate from point one it wasn't easy for Collins to play defense, yet still, her movement looked great. To get the break in that second set, she hits an on-the-run lob and ends up winning the point. That was so phenomenal. Um, I think she deserves this. She has earned every step along the way. Absolutely, and I think just back to the point of why I said that about the first set, when when you have that many breakpoint opportunities and don't convert, it can be disheartening, and and it can be something that, you know, it kind of weighs on you in that second set thinking about all those breakpoint opportunities. And so that that's more kind of the, the reason I thought that, you know, after losing that first set that I was surprised to hear come back the way she did. Um, but look, yeah, she had, you know, as you said, she hadn't been past the first round in a Grand Slam, but had a good year last year, you know, winning Newport, making two semifinals of Masters tournaments. It, I, I think a lot of people had high hopes for her, but, absolutely she deserves this you know she played unbelievable tennis throughout this tournament and um unfortunately you didn't have the balls to bet on her but you should have <laughs> well i try not to gamble on tennis because i think it clouds my judgment but yeah you look at the things collins does well make 60 percent of her first serves wins 77 percent of those points when she can dictate her serve plus one on either side elite for that for the game i mean her serve plus one backhand, I love. I love the way she it's goes good. after the backhand. That backhand cross court, especially in that third set, was just she was just ripping it. Absolutely, and you know, thirty-eight winners against twenty-four un- or against twenty unforced errors. It, you know, everything was going her way. Fun fact for you, Rothman: American women have won eighteen and a half percent of all of the women's singles matches played thus far at the Australian Open. That's pretty awesome. That's yeah, that's a lot. I'm curious what the men's stat is. <laughs> uh, Not- well, I, I, I want to say the men have 11 wins, so it, you know, less than half of that, so about nine percent. Not bad, ten percent. Not bad. Not bad. But you look at a big picture. You have people like Serena, Keys, Stevens, Collins. Now, you know, Kenan, Bellis uh, of Venus as well. They're just 
the U.S. women are so much better positioned than the men, at least in my opinion, to win slams in the next two to three years. Yeah, I mean, the thing about it is we haven't necessarily, excuse me, we haven't necessarily seen the rise of our next gen guys yet. Um, so I think, yeah, sure, currently better positioned. I think there's a chance for men, uh, but yeah, I think it's hard to argue that the women aren't aren't in a better position. Well, you mentioned the next-gen men. Let's move on to our next match. We have to talk about Rafael Nadal. You know, it's a straight-set win, 6-3, 6-4, 6-2 over Francis Tiafo. but I thought Francis really held his own in this match. He did, but it it just looked like there was nothing he could do. I I mean, when the second that Nadal pulled him off the court with that cross-court forehand, I mean, you knew he was winning 95% of those points. And, and I think this was more uh, just a result of him. Excuse me. This was more just a result of Tiafo not quite understanding how to play Nadal. And, and not that there is necessarily a, a particular way to play him, but when you haven't gone up against him a couple times, it's hard to figure out his game and figure out the way that you need to play to beat him. And I think this is just a case of him, you know, it's one of his. Is this is a. Oh, hold on, pause. Is this his only first match against Nadal? Uh, I believe so, yes. Yeah. You know, being his... Excuse me, pause. I'm leaving all of this in. Okay, why? <laughs> just keep going. I'm just double-checking. Um, uh, it's all good. This is what the fans want to hear, but please. No, nah, it's not. But, uh, you know, being his first match against Nadal, it's tough. There are very few players who beat a Djokovic and Nadal or a Federer on the first time they play. I mean, it usually takes at least a match to figure out how to play these guys. So, of course, I'm going to disagree with you, and this is half the fun of the podcast. The things that Tiafo did not do well, he gets broken in the first game of each set. When you're playing a yeah. big three guy, as we mentioned, you can't have that happen. Still, he makes 75% of his first serves in this match, wins 70% of those points. You know, when he's hitting second serves, he's losing. When Nadal's dictating with his forehand, when he's hitting the first ball aggressively, Tiafo was in trouble in this match, particularly because... I think more than anything, the Nadal backhand to Tiafo forehand exchanges did not go Tiafo's way. Now, why I'm saying a counterpoint to you, I thought the Tiafo backhand Nadal forehand exchanges went about as well as Francis Tiafo could have expected. And in fact, that might have been the better side for him to play in this match because of the way he's comfortable stepping in on his backhand. The backswing is shorter. He's not afraid to take that ball early. He, you know, he had his break points in the match in the I think it was down 1-2 a break in that early second set where, you know, he was taking backhands down the line, shifting direction on Nadal, trying to beat him to the spot. And now that Nadal's a little bit older, that's what you have to do against him. You have to take time away. And I thought it was an admirable attempt. I just thought whenever he went into his, you know, his slicing and dicing, whenever he got on the run, he couldn't hit forehands to put Nadal in the defensive, and that's when he got in trouble. I mean, that's fair for the most part. I just think there were too many times where the the lefty forehand from Nadal got too high up on Tiafo's backhand. And I think this is somewhere where Federer has been successful with Nadal throughout his career is taking those high back backhands and slicing them back low. I think he would, would have given Tiafo more time to get back into the court, recover too often. He let himself get pulled way off the court. And then the second that happens, Nadal has the entire court on either uh, his forehand or his backhand and just push him away. 
again, I'm, I disagree with you because whenever Tiafo sliced returns in this match, that point was over. Nadal, you know, makes seventy. But I'm, but how can you slice a high backhand? That's like a, an impossible ask. I, I disagree. That that's one of those balls where when it's high, you can cut hard on them. You can really put some pace on them because you don't have to worry about it getting over the net. It's already above the net. You slice it low and it cuts deep and hard. Uh, it's if you watch Federer and Nadal in a lot of their matches, it's something that is so successful for Federer. Uh, I don't know. I mean, f- I, I, I disagree. I think that's why Federer loses to Nadal's because Nadal can expose that. Make That's the hardest that, shot in tennis that is, to hit. That is ultimately the hardest shot in tennis for a right which is wh- Which is why I'm saying, why would he want to do that? I thought he was great taking balls early, trying to swing through. Like I thought that but, was the strategy. Yeah, but he wasn't. Th- th- that's my point, is that there was too many times where he was not taking it early enough. And, and he okay. was getting pulled off the court. It was getting high up on his backhand. And that's where he lost points. Okay, that's fair. I mean, look, Nadal, 74% first serve percentage. It's freaking Nadal, man. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Wins 84% of his first serve points. Something he's repeated throughout all these matches is a high first serve win percentage. So that bodes well for him. You know, a tidy 9 of 11 at the net. 29 winners against 23 unforced errors. You know, a, a fun stat as we round this one up. After reaching one Grand Slam quarterfinal in the 20 Grand Slams between 2012 and 2016, U.S. men have made quarterfinals at six of the last nine men's single slams. That, of course, is from our guy, Jonathan Kelly. But, Max, U.S. men's tennis is on the rise. People, one of the takes I haven't liked is how, oh, it's another sudden breakthrough that no one saw this coming from Francis Tiafo. I would argue... Yeah, it's just another step in the many steps this next-gen group of Americans have been taking. Absolutely. I I think anyone who says they haven't seen it coming, just they haven't been watching. Because we've been watching, we've been saying this, we've been talking about, you know, the the next-gen rise for the last year now. And it's evident. I mean, here it is. I'm tr- <laughs> I'm trying to change up my uh, segues in between topics, so I'm not going to say absolutely this time. I will say another young guy we have seen progressing, taking the steps, ready to make a breakthrough like this. Stefano Tsitsipas, the number 14 seed, who takes out Roberto Bautista Agut, 7-5, 4-6, Bautista Agut just ran out of energy at the end. I mean, yeah, look, Bautista Agut had spent... Excuse me. Batista Gut had spent the most time on court of any of the guys in the quarterfinals, having spent 14 hours and three minutes, having played three five-set matches. I mean, the guy was gassed. And you know what I will say? Tsitsipas also had spent this, the third most amount of time on court with 12 hours and 14 minutes, which is also a substantial amount of time. If you were watching this match, there were times where I think both of them looked a little gassed. But the thing that I think stood out most for Tsitsipas was his mental toughness. This guy was smart on the points that he needed to be smart on. He hung tough when he needed to. And of all of the the next-gen guys, he seems to me the most mentally tough player of them all. I mean, again, it's that's a tough stat. I, I, I don't know if I agree or disagree. I will say this on the Bautista Gut front in terms of hours on court. You know, he went five sets with Murray. He goes four or three sets with Kachanoa, five sets with Chilich. That 14 hours, three minutes is as difficult of a 14 hours, three minutes on court as you can spend. And I just think 
to Tsitsipas's credit, you look at some of the stats. Yes, he hits 22 aces against three double faults. Yes, he goes 19 of 33 at the net, wins 84% of his first serve points. Uh, you know, 68 winners against 38 unforced errors. But even most impressively, getting back to your mental toughness, he could see that Roberto Bautista Agut was tired, and he knew, okay, yeah. some of these points I may have to elongate, and I may lose them anyway. But he is wearing down, and I'm the more physically fit player in this match. Absolutely. And that's, I think, what I mean by the mental toughness. He recognized that. He was being smart when he needed to be. And, you know, it's funny because we I don't think either of us would consider him a grinder. But at times he was in this match. And, you know, that's that's what he needed to do to pull out the W. Can I ask, because we've been critical before in terms of the Tsitsipas movement, it's good, right? It's not great, but it's good. You know, I think watching uh, that's it's funny that you bring that up because I think there were at times during this match where I was like, "Dang, that movement isn't good," and it almost like surprised me that he got to places. I think he is like Federer in that he reads the ball really well, so it, it I think it compensates for his movement. And I think at times, even when his movement's bad, he looks better because of the way that he's able to see the ball. I, I still don't think he's got the greatest movement. His confidence, though, willing to move forward on a serve plus one, willing to change directions on a ball and follow that in, you know, 33 attempts at the net is not huge, but it is a good number, particularly when holding serve was so important in this match. You look at break points. You know, Roberto Bautista Gut does go 3 of 4, which is very efficient, but Pas goes 4 of 11. He's the guy with more break point opportunities. I really thought he should have broken RBA to end that match and that that fourth set shouldn't have gone into a tiebreaker. But still, he closes it out well there. I mean, he's dynamic at the baseline. He changes direction at will. A guy, I would say, does need a backhand slice. And and we'll get into why the Tsitsipas and Dahl matchup may be tough for Tsitsipas, but I want to end uh, by talking a little bit about RBA because his run at the beginning of the season has been tremendous. You know, he wins in Doha, beats Djokovic, comes here, makes the first Grand Slam quarterfinal of his career. Is this a fluke instance from him, Rothman, where he's just playing really, really well for a month? Or do you think we see him, you know, maybe sustain top 20, top 15, maybe even jump into the top 10 given that there's so much turmoil right now in the rankings. I mean, look, I don't know if you remember our conversations that we had pre-Australian Open, but I was all high praise on RBA going into this tournament. I, I told you about his his Doha win and how well he was playing. I mean, I, I was very much on the RBA bandwagon. I don't know. He clearly did something in the offseason. I, I think we could see him continuing to play well. Like I said, he's striking the ball really well. He's moving forward a little more. He's, you know, taking, excuse me, he's taking time away from players. He's driving through the court. I I think we're seeing a little bit of a a new and improved RBA. I don't know. I I think there's a, you know, a very good chance of him staying in the top 20, you know, taking some more big W's throughout the season. He is so physically fit. It really is impressive. The way he takes balls early, the way he plays aggressive yet smart tennis, it's just it's really fun to watch. I would say a guy he plays very similar to, a guy we'll be talking about in this next match, Luca Pui, who has yeah. looked equally well-balanced in his 7-6, 6-3, 6-7, 6-4 win over an incredibly hot Milos Raonic coming into this one. Yeah, and, you know, as you said, Raonic was incredibly hot coming into this, was not incredibly hot in those first two sets. 
he, you know, missing shots that he shouldn't be, missing volleys that he shouldn't be. I, I mean, it, it was a surprising first two sets and still was a close first two sets going 7-6, 6-3. Uh, but it wasn't the same Randage that we had seen in the previous rounds. Yeah, it's it's funny because he goes up 4-1 in that first set, up a break, and you think, okay, this set's over. And yet Puy is able to scrap a break back. You look in terms of break points. Puy gets 14 chances, goes 3 of 14 versus Rayonich is 1 of 1. You know, for Rayonich, only makes 58% of his first serves in this one. That's lower than we had seen coming into it. Wins 71% of those points, but only wins 56% of his second serve points. I think even worse for him... 47 of 81, only 58% conversion rate at the net. His approach shots just didn't have the sting they did in the earlier matches, particularly on the backhand side. He was just not getting into the court with his slice, with his backhand through the ball much at all. But to Puy's credit, he had a ton of great passing shots in this match, and he kept Rayonich on the defensive. Absolutely. I mean, I think we saw the breakdown from Rayonich mentally following that break in the first set, and I want to say it all kind of went downhill from there. Uh, but I do want to point out also 81 net points from Ranich is wild. He was coming into the net a lot this match. He couldn't win the baseline exchanges. Pui was that good no. from the ground. And I, I said this last pot, I'll say it again. Pui's backhand down the line has looked as impressive as any non-Novak Djokovic this season. Er, and it's it's just funny because you talked about that stock up, stock down that we did before this tournament. Pui was stocked down and now he looks incredible. Yeah, 100%. And I do want to bring up a point because it's getting talked about a lot in the press. You know, Pui having a female coach and, you know, it, he's one of the few male players that does have a female coach and he's getting a lot of questions about it. Um, you know, I, I just want to give him props for defending that and, you know, being willing to do that. It, it, he's clearly changed something and it's working for him. He even said he played some good matches in the Hotman Cup and, you know, even though he had lost a couple of them, he's playing good tennis and clearly something is working and clearly something Emilia is, is doing is, is going well for him. Yeah, I agree. I'm all for their partnership. It's fun to watch. It's just fun to watch another guy like this succeed. And, you know, now Puy, I, I think, matches up with Djokovic after Djokovic takes out Nishikori 6-1, 4-1. It's it's just tough because Djokovic really hasn't been tested at... I mean, he was tested a little bit, I guess, against Shapovalov, a little bit, I guess, against Sanga, but for him to get this sort of experience, to get a day off today and then come into that match fresh, it's a tough uh, thing to ask of Puy to knock out Djokovic here. Yeah, I mean, Djokovic is playing some fantastic tennis. There, there's not a ton to say. I mean, I, I just I don't have a, a lot of expectations for this match other than a straight set wins for Djokovic a straight set win for Djokovic. All right, well then, before we get even further into our semifinals, let's talk a little bit about just setting the scene. Let's let's have some fun stats I accumulated on tennis Twitter, of course, from our guys at Luca Beck and at Joe Kelly underscore tennis. You talk about the male semifinalists. All four of the Australian Open singles finalists are from Europe in terms of the last three decades. That happened once during the 40 Grand Slams from 1990 to 1999. 10 times in the 40 Grand Slams from 2010 to 2009. Max Rothman, it has happened 25 out of the 37 Grand Slams from 2010 to 2019. If there's a stat that speaks to the dominance of the Big Four the best, it's probably that one. Okay, well, first of all, it is the Big Three. 
Um, it's not the big four. I, I know you desperately want it to be. Uh, but yeah, it's it's so obvious. It, you look at the Grand Slam titles within Europe. You look at you know twenty five of thirty seven semifinals from the last ten years. It's just so obvious, and we've seen it. And it's time for our our next gen Americans to make a change to that stat because I'm tired of it. Well, look, if this is the thirty seventh consecutive men men's Grand Slam singles title won by a European, fifty eighth in the last fifty nine. I mean, you look at some of the other things. Both Stefano Tsitsipas and Luca Pui, both people from Europe, won their first ever Australian Open matches this year and then go on to reach the semifinals in that same tournament. The last time two players did that, the 1997 French Open, Gustavo Quertin and DeWolf. Uh, you look at some uh, some other uh, Pui-Tsitsipas-related stats. Luca Pui becomes the first player born in 1994 to reach a Grand Slam semifinal. Stefano Tsitsipas becomes the first player born in 1998 to reach a Grand Slam semifinal. Semifinal. Tsitsipas, the youngest player to reach a Grand Slam semifinal since Djokovic in 07 U.S. Open. That's pretty good company. Um, Puy becomes this, just the seventh Frenchman ever to make an Australian Open semifinals in the open era, in, in singles at least. Uh, I mean, some of the stats from the big three that they've solidified in this Novak Djokovic, second player in open era with at least seven semifinals at every slam tournament. Ruffin, he's got seven Australian Open semis, eight uh, French Open semis, eight Wimbledon semis, 11 U.S. Open semis. The only other guy with seven at every event, Roger Federer. For Rafa Nadal, he became the third player in the open air to reach six semifinals in every slam. He's got six at, at the Aussie, 11 at the French, six at Wimbledon, seven at the U.S. Open. He joins Federer and Djokovic in that club. And then my last fun one for you, the 30 Grand Slam semifinals club, a new club we're making. It's exclusive yep. company. We've got Rafa joining now with his 30th at this tournament. Jimmy Connors with 31. Novak Djokovic with 33. Roger Federer with 43. That is fucking ridiculous. Rothman, if you're ever going to make a big three argument, that's where you should start. I couldn't agree more. And I want to throw in uh, another just kind of interesting uh, stat that you did not include. Uh, Stefano Tsitsipas joins Chung as one of the players to win the next-gen title and then the next year, uh, or excuse me, the, the following Australian Open make the semifinal. This is having back-to-back years. Is this a coincidence? Here's what I'll say. If I'm Denis Shapovalov, I'm playing this year just for the <laughs> off chance that that's a real thing, that they do it like that. Because I, yeah, I, I agree. Pretty, I think you should do it. Yeah, pretty cool. Well, uh, I was going to say, let's just hope that, you know, CC Paz is a better year following the Australian Open than Chung did. <laughs> that may be true. Well, before we go, let's preview the semifinal matches. Obviously, we'll start on top. Novak Djokovic, the number one seed, takes on number 28 seed, Luka Pui. This is their first career matchup, and you look at their path to get here. Djokovic takes out Kruger in three, Sanga in three, Shapovalov in four, Medvedev in four, now Nishikori in what is barely two sets. For Pui, Kukushkin in three, Martyr in four, Papyrin in five, Chorich in four, Rayonich in four. Pui's been tested, Rothman, but I think he comes into this Djokovic match relatively fresh. Yeah, he is. I want to say he's relatively fresh, um, but I think, you know, like you said, he hasn't fully been tested. I mean, the matches that – I think the the match that he's going to see the level compared to most is Chorich. Um, you know, I, I think he's just going to – wait, <clears throat> excuse me. I think he's just going to have a hard time keeping up with Djokovic's level. I mean, Djokovic has spent the least amount of time on court 
than any of the guys that are left, and he just looks fresh. And I don't know. It, this, in my opinion, is going to be a straight set win for Djokovic. I think you bring up the fact that he's played a guy like George. He knows in terms of going backhand to backhand exchanges, which Djokovic will want to do. Pui's going to have to make some backhands down the line, and he's done it in these past two matches. He's hit both Chorich and Raonic off the court. He's demonstrated that power. Now it's easier to do that to those two, obviously, than Novak Djokovic. I'm a little surprised this is their first career matchup. If there's more data to you know look back on, I think that would be helpful. Pui's playing really well, and if he steals a set, that would not surprise me, especially the way if Djokovic goes up two sets to love, who's to say he doesn't throw away another third set like he did against Shapovalov, where, you know, he just lets up a late break. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, 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 it's tough to see a scenario. What, what would Luka Pui have to do? What would that match look like if he were to pull out a win? I mean, he's just going to have to be ultra-aggressive. I think it's the only way we see Pui. You know, look, he, like you said, he, he pushed off Ranich and, and Chorich off the court a little bit and, and that was surprising to see and, and it's going to be freaking hard to do that against Djokovic I really see that as the only way for him to be ultra aggressive the same way that I think Poss needs to be ultra aggressive against Nadal and similarly as you said with Luka Pui hitting those backhand down the lines and being not being afraid to rip them I, am I, can I rest assured thinking – rest assured, I guess it doesn't really matter, but I'm assuming you're taking Djokovic over Puy. You said straights? Yep. All right, then let's indeed move on to that next match, Tsitsipas versus Nadal. Nadal leads their career head-to-head 2-0. They played twice last year, once on clay, which we'll throw out, but they did play in the Canada Masters final, a match Nadal won 2-6. and six. You know, Tsitsipas was gassed coming into that match. I believe he had taken out Anderson and Djokovic the two rounds before. You know, he comes in having taken out Federer, having taken out Roberto Bautista Agut, but physically he looked pretty good at the end of the Roberto Bautista Agut match. The problem for him, Nadal has coasted through his draw so far. Yeah, oh, 100%. And I think we're going to see the same thing with Nadal attacking that backhand. I got to say, one of the things that Poss did really well in this last match against RBA is rip that back in down the line. And, and I think that's going to be one of the ways that he's going to be successful in this match if he's able to keep on doing that. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. That's going to be the biggest thing is, is he going to be able to penetrate the court with his backhand or is Nadal just going to rope-a-dope him around that ad side, you know, get him stretched off the alley, hit the slice out wide serve. Tsitsipas is going to have to cut that off. Otherwise, he's just exposing himself to a Nadal plus one forehand that you do not want to spend, you know, ask Tiafo three sets chasing down. Tsitsipas is going to have to serve well. There's no doubt he can do a little bit of damage with his serve. You know, if Nadal starts chipping his backhand return back, Tsitsipas will not be afraid to snap off a forehand. I mean, I mean Nadal's the favorite coming into this one for sure. I mean, definitely. I, I really think the things that you have to see from Tsitsipas in this match, he's got to be ultra-aggressive. He's got to take that first set. He, he needs to be the one who's dictating the points. If he gets into a match where it starts going long and Nadal's, you know, creating these, you know, elongated points, I think it's going to be an automatic win for him. I think you need to see Tsitsipas shortening points, being aggressive. If he, take, if he doesn't take that first set, I see almost a 0% chance of him winning this match. Although I will I, say, every match in a Grand Slam where he was, where he has won the first set, he's won the match. So that, that's just something to, to keep in mind. I think that's an excellent point. I think you talked about earlier about that slice. If Tsitsipas is slicing returns back... 
That's what Nadal loves when Federer does that. He can step up on his forehand, hit inside out. He has enough time to run around it. And when you're playing with Nadal's forehand, you're going to lose unless your name's Novak Djokovic. And that's just why, I don't know. If I put the over-under at three and a half sets, would you take the over or the under? I'm going to take the over. I I realistically see a four-set win for Nadal. All right, well then I will ask you I, – I, th- I completely agree with you. I think that's going to be the number, and I want to ask you one last thing before we go. On the women's side, you look at Danielle Collins. She now matches up with Petra Kvitova. What do you think of her chances? You know what? The whole tournament people have been doubting her. I think it's time to stop doubting her. She looks really good. It's going to be a close match. Both are playing really good tennis, and I think you can expect it to be damn close. Well, I think we'll just have to see. Uh, Collins can take time away from Petra Kvitova, and if you can do that, I don't think she's going to be intimidated going backhand to Petra's forehand. I, I, I'm going to take her with another upset. I love this ride. Let's keep it, you know, this roller coaster, let's keep yeah. it going. Let's ride the Collins train, baby. <laughs> totally down. Well, then, any last thoughts before we wrap up? I'm just excited for these semifinals matches. It's going to be fun. Yeah. It's going to be a ton of fun, and of course, again, if you have missed anything where you want to catch up on all things Australian Open, check out our website, CrackedRackets.com. We've got so much great content up there. Check out our social media, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, Facebook. You'll get immediate updates, commentary during the match. They're all a ton of fun. I want to give a huge shout-out, as always, to our super producers, Max Fliegner and Daniel Westhoff, who have had a f- job to do all week, and they continue to just churn out podcasts at will, so thank you to them. But... One last time, for our entire team at Cracked Rackets, for our super producers, Max Fligner and Daniel Westhoff, and for my tremendous co-host, Maxwell LeBauer-Rothman, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. Maxie, what do we say to our fans? Hey, great shot. Thank you for doing this from your car. Get out of there as soon as you can. Get into that AC, and we will see you all next week. Thanks, everyone. Hey, great great shot. Great shot, Maxie.